CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 14 Before and after joining the EU Part 2 with Wojciech Przybylski Welcome to the new episode of the IDM podcast series CE Central Europe Explained. My name is Movina Talik. I'm a research associate at the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe in Vienna. Last week, we discussed the challenges that resulted from the Eastern enlargement of the EU in 2004. Today, we will continue on this topic, but also strike a more positive note and focus on the opportunities and success stories that followed the enlargement in question. I am very pleased to welcome my guest, Wojciech Przybylski, President of Respublika and Editor-in-Chief at Visegrad Insight. Hello, Wojtek. Hi, hello. Very good to be on your podcast. Yeah, thank you for joining us from Warsaw. So let us go back in time to the 1st of May 2004. This day, 10 countries joined the EU, among them eight former communist states. Overnight, EU15 became EU25. Many feared that such a big enlargement would paralyze EU effectiveness in decision-making or would result in a massive influx of workers from the East. To what extent did those concerns become reality? Those concerns were the real fears, of course, uh, manifested in the German and perhaps in the Austrian public space. And they were not so much vocalized in the British space. And, and so it happened that with the partial opening of, uh, of the labor market in the EU, many, I mean, millions of Poles, uh, but also Slovaks, Czechs to some extent, to a lesser extent also Hungarians, went immediately to those countries where the labor market would accept them. And we had, uh, in a matter of months, millions of Poles literally fleeing to the United Kingdom. So it, it was, in a way, contrary to, to the concern. Those, uh, those people did not go to Germany. Those, uh, those migrant workers did not go to Austria or France, where uh, the protectionist uh, narrative, public narrative, uh, was matched also with appropriate uh, legislation that prevented mass influx of, of people coming to those countries, uh, seeking jobs. But uh, for the UK, where this influx happened, that meant a structural change in the society. Eventually it sparked Brexit, but uh, initially it sparked a nationalist response from the society. To a large extent, you could even say that the migrants were responsible for Brexit. And how about um, effectiveness in decision-making? Do you think that this enlargement paralyzed it in any way? Uh, enlargement did not polarize, uh, polarize uh, European Union. And again, Brexit is the, the most stark example of the effectiveness of the European Union institutions even at uh, 27 members. At that time, there were fewer. Uh, European Union decision-making process, and especially foreign policy, trade negotiations, very complex negotiations with Brexit, about Brexit, turned out to be you know, decisions uh, taken swiftly and something that uh, European Union can cope with. 
But of course, uh, initially, and the, around that time when the enlargement was happening, there was uh, a lot of talk about how ineffective European Union is, and also at the same time, how undemocratic it is, which uh, in retrospective uh, turns out not to be true. Mm -hmm. In the past uh, 17 years, much has been discussed and, and written about how the new member states benefited from the EU membership. Um, but what about opportunities and positive developments that this enlargement brought to the EU as a whole and to the old member states? Well, first of all, you got a lot of skilled, cheap labor force coming to the countries of the so-called uh, old EU or member states that were already part of the EU before. So that was one practical, very pragmatic elements that all of a sudden you didn't have a problem with a plumber in France. The big posters were even um, uh, advertising how handsome a Polish plumber might be, which was a, a bizarre uh, <laughs> campaign, but, but it was a campaign even in France, uh, showing the, the, the good sides, the, the great sides uh, of that kind of integration, of that kind of services coming to France. So this openness or even semi-openness of labor market was uh, extremely helpful to the economies of the countries uh, that are that were before members of the European Union. Another element uh, important is that uh, those people came, they came for work, uh, they got their jobs, but they didn't take the money away. <laughs> there were remittances. For instance, uh, you could observe in Poland, the, the case of remittance uh, was, was high. This was uh, going you know, with the first wave of people uh, going to the UK. Uh, there were millions, uh, literally, if, if not more, uh, transferred to, to the country back home, to the families uh, every year. But then reports started to came about from the Senate that takes care about, uh, I mean, the, the Senate has competences uh, for, um, for monitoring polls abroad and the foreign ministry in the government that the level of remittances is dropping. And it's dropping because all the people who got jobs elsewhere started to invest properties in uh, purchasing stuff they have in the countries that they are relocated to. So uh, not only that those countries who received migrant workers uh, benefited from cheaper services, overall they built, uh, they started to build uh, more capital uh, in, in economic terms uh, in, in the countries that received them. So these are the two and the third, I would say the third one um, beyond labor markets, let's say one is uh, value-based argument and it's about Europe whole and free. This is delivering and it's still unfinished promise of what Europe as a, as a community of uh, free nations and cultures should look like and it's still work in progress and it was very important step. This enlargement was uh, bringing some of the countries that are not yet part of the EU uh, if not even EU then of uh, common free democratic space in Europe back with some reassurances about uh, the commitment of the others regarding the, the common project. And, and the second one was um, a little bit also pragmatic, but from the point of view of strategy, of, of security, uh, Europe has a, a very troubled uh, neighbor to the east, 
which is Russia. And this neighbor uh, remained dormant throughout the 90s and in, you know, late into the 2000, but in the 21st century. But uh, recently we have seen uh, geopolitical shifts. Uh, Russia reintroduced the language of geopolitics to the European debate. Uh, showing that it's uh, hungry for power grabs, uh, for changing borders uh, against uh, international law. And in such a world uh, where such dangers still exist uh, for Europe, Eastern European enlargement provided for the whole of Europe, not only in the sense of being together and community, but pragmatically speaking, it was a buffer zone. So Central European, Eastern European countries for the rest of the European Union members are in a sense uh, an insurance, a geographical insurance uh, that uh, the sphere of influence that Moscow believes it's uh, creating around it. I, I think it's, uh, it's another myth how, how effective they are in doing so. Um, it's, it's not at the immediate borders of, uh, you know, close to Berlin, close to Vienna, close to uh, Stockholm, but there is, uh, as I said, a buffer zone. That's a very interesting point. I would just go back to the question of labor markets still, because the Central European markets also opened. The markets of the new member states opened to those older, of the old uh, member states. Uh, there were very many investments. Do you think that meant also very many new opportunities for the old member states? Do they invest a lot in Poland, for example, in Poland or in other countries of this region? Well, yes, of course. I mean, there are investors, there are people who are business people, and they came to the country uh, because they knew and they observed how rapidly the country has been developing, seeking for a high return on their investment. That's within various sectors. That's, uh, that's from automotive, of course. There's a large connection between Germany and Austria and Central Europe on, on that level. But there's also, uh, for instance, agriculture. Uh, the Dutch uh, came to Poland. Uh, in a way, they came back from, from the past centuries perspective uh, to invest in agriculture, to invest in modernization of the agriculture and seek opportunities, business opportunities to develop. You have uh, a lot of uh, this business investment, agriculture investment, but, but yes, the labor market is also, um, from even my personal point of view, very, very open to, uh, to foreigners. In, in our small team at Visegrad Insights, uh, we have been employing a person from UK. We have a doctor of um, political science from Belgium, and we have a Portuguese who just completed also her studies. And all of our colleagues are, you know, f fantastically educated. Uh, they could find and they could seek uh, job opportunities anywhere in Europe. And, and there are many uh, examples like this uh, in the capital cities of, of the countries of Central Europe, of the Visegrad group. The situation might be a little bit different on the provinces, but that's overall across the board in the European Union. Big cities are the hubs for international, for the mix of uh, ethnicities and uh, citizenships uh, when it comes to the labor market, simply. This leads me actually to, to my next question, because I would like to focus on some success stories from Central and Eastern Europe. Poland is considered a great economic success story among the new member states. 
what are the reasons for this success? And to what extent can it be attributed to the EU membership? Well, in many ways, uh, Polish transformation uh, way before EU accession has been laying grounds for, for this robust growth that we see today. And that's, uh, sorry to say, but that went through a very difficult crisis. We did not experience such a big crisis in 2008, which led the Prime Minister Donald Tusk, later a president of the EU, to say that we were the Green Islands, uh, you know, imitating a bit the, the myth about the Irish economy and its resilience. Uh, but, but Poland indeed was uh, doing very well through that crisis, unlike many other countries in, in Europe. And even today, if we look at the numbers uh, today, uh, Poland, but also Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, Hungary, they have very good prospects of bouncing back from the current uh, pandemic crisis. And that, uh, as I said, on the example of Poland, uh, comes with, with a very difficult uh, experience of the crisis from the 90s. In the 80s and the 90s, there was no economy. It was, uh, it was just a survival strategy. Uh, an individual, very much individualized survival strategy that uh, destroyed social societal bonds, uh, that destroyed uh, a lot of the practical solidarity in a country of the solidarity movement. And, uh, people felt atomized, left alone, and then I said, and as I said, they were uh, applying a sort of survival strategy uh, in economic terms, doing whatever they can to to earn money and sur survive, and also to emigrate. Unemployment was extremely high, and uh, unemployment rates kept high for a very long time. The stability that came with the entrance to the European Union also gave prospects for the uh, for this uh, long bounce back from the early 90s uh, for Poland, for other countries of Central Europe as well. And if you look in in terms of GDP per purchase power per capita, Poland was nearly you know cutting half the distance from, from that time uh, measured until today to people living in Germany. So it's hard to say for me that it was only due to the European Union, but should there be no European Union in place, I believe the, uh, this success might have been much easier uh, reversed, damaged, disturbed on the way. Um, because many of the reforms that were regulating the market, that were civilizing the market, uh, that were uh, coming during those transformative years, were coming on the ticket of adapting European standard. And that usually meant uh, European Union standard. So this process of adapting uh, regulations uh, forged in the EU institutions between member states and their representatives were enabling Poland and other countries of Central Europe to be early adapters and adapters to a much at a much greater speed of all these regulations uh, than, than many other countries that were not in the space of transformation because they haven't lived through such a crisis, political but also economic crisis in the 80s and 90s as Central Europe. Maybe that have laid ground for what we see today. So it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger, right? Yeah, in many ways, yes, I guess. <laughs> I wouldn't simplify it this way. Uh, it's a catchy slogan, but uh, we have to remember that behind it, there, there were human tragedies and there was human loss. 
many people were so disappointed with transformation because in fact they lost a lot uh, because uh, their money lost values, they lost their properties. You know, these were not people who were business people. These were clerks, these were teachers, these were uh, people who had some savings and in, the, in this transformation, they, um, they were exposed to, uh, to next to zero protection uh, from, uh, from anywhere. Uh, but most of them, they really bounced back. The only ones who eventually by today stayed behind is, is those who didn't do anything, who mm -hmm. didn't risk and, and, and didn't, didn't invest. And, uh, and there is still a, a group of people, uh, of course, in, in Poland, many other countries in Central Europe that, that still in, in many ways in their daily practices and also level of life uh, are, are not that far from 1980s. Mm -hmm. We're slowly coming to an end of our podcast, so it's a good moment to talk about future. But what lies ahead for the EU as observed from the Central European perspective? Is the EU headed towards a widening East-West divide, or will it become more united in diversity? What's your opinion on that? Well, there is no West-East divide. I mean, it, it is if someone chooses to believe and, and, and also propagate this idea, but this idea doesn't have confirmation in reality. Uh, so on, on every level, I mean, I can speak of economy, uh, again, come to Warsaw and, and see this is, uh, people are here living better. I mean, they have a higher economic status than in many other Western capitals or uh, on the political level, well, it's more difficult to prove here, but then the resilience of the civil society in Slovakia recently, but I believe in other countries here in the region, also proves that these countries are not as they look like, as they are easily portrayed in the press, uh, contrary to the popular belief. So I don't believe in the East-West divide overall. Uh, when you ask me about the future, uh, that's a very interesting question. Two years ago, we conducted a strategic design thinking workshops with uh, think tankers, experts, young generation of you know, journalists as well, together with the German Marshall uh, Fund of the United States uh, for uh, the office in Berlin. And uh, we've been mapping out scenarios for Central Europe. One of the conclusions of, from this exercise, and the scenarios are in fact actually very interesting, they, they were mapping out scenarios for Central Europe 2025. But one of the conclusions I wanted to mention was that Central Europeans have never talked to each other that much and uh, have never participated in the European Union or Europe, any other European integration projects before. And they haven't fully participated yet. Uh, they were catching on, they were jumping on, they were joining in, but they were short of creating the future of Europe. Uh, along with that, the Central Europeans were short of, uh, of a discussion about what's our own input, what's our own vision, despite uh, a lot of the nationalist uh, discourse and narrative in Central Europe these nations were hardly ever taking themselves uh, seriously as nations. And they were looking up to the big ones, the older ones, or however you want to call them. So I think this is the future for Central Europe, that Central Europe starts to take itself more seriously. 
and, and grows more mature in the public discussion about the direction, about the strategy, and also about the consequences of lack of such a strategy. Importantly, in 2000, by 2004, we have had a big public discussion and a big public uh, commitment also to one general goal. And there, then there were various ways of, of how to reach that goal, which was about the accession uh, to the EU, which was about joining NATO, which was about securing the future. But all these very interesting discussions, along with the sense of public effort that we need to do something about our future, have, have abruptly stopped in 2004 when we joined. And it took us, what, 15 years to realize that without uh, ambitious goals and visions and also narrative and talk about where we want to go as nations, we might be uh, easily uh, fooled by uh, a couple of uh, skillful populists which uh, do nothing else, but they, they use this opportunity to present their own abstract vision. And then uh, there is the reaction, as I mentioned, from the civil society, from the press, a wake-up call. And, and I believe this is, uh, this is something that is to be expected of Central Europe, the countries uh, in the region. They will have a lot, uh, a lot of interesting things to say about the state of democracy. And uh, hopefully in, in due time and not too, not too late, rather sooner than later, they will also change uh, much about their state of their democracies. Thank you very much, Wojtek, for joining us today and for sharing your expertise. Many thanks to our listeners for following the CE Central Europe Explained podcast series powered by Erste Group. And a great thing about podcasts in general is that you do not have to listen to them in real time. So feel free to explore our ACAST library whenever you find time and whenever you want. We also encourage you to become an IDM member and receive more information on Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe. Visit our website to learn more, www.idm.at. Thank you very much and see you soon. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and expertise since 1953.